Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. My name is Rick Zamprin, in for Bill Kelly today. Tens of thousands of education workers across Ontario beginning a work-to-rule campaign, all in an effort to pressure the province into making concessions in contract negotiations. The Liberals releasing their federal election platform. Four people arrested as People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier held an event at Hamilton's Mohawk College over the weekend. Low-price fashion chain Forever 21 filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And Republicans appear to be split over how President Trump should respond to impeachment proceedings. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Tens of thousands of education workers across this province have launched a work-to-rule campaign. It's all in a bid to pressure the provincial government into making some concessions as they negotiate a new deal. So who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about 55,000 custodians, clerical workers, early childhood educators, across Ontario, last night saying, yes, we are working to rule after mediation broke down. Now, QP's Ontario School Board Council of Unions says the workers will stop working overtime and performing some extra duties in which they're not paid for. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says, quote, it's deeply disappointing. He says the student safety is the government's priority during the work to rule campaign. Contracts for Ontario's public school teachers and education workers expired at the end of last month. And the major unions are in various stages of bargaining with not only the trustees associations, but the provincial government as well. So let's bring in our first guest to well explain what's going on. Her name is Laura Walton. She is the president of QP's Ontario School Board Councils of Unions and uh, joins us now here on the Bill Kelly Show. Laura, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great, thank you. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, maybe we'll start with this. How would you describe uh, the negotiations to this point? Have they been uh, bitter, one-sided, cordial at times? Give us a, a sneak peek of what's happening in the boardroom. Uh, we have a great relationship with the Council of Trustees Association, and uh, you know we've been working with them for four years. You know, it's been cordial all the way through. Uh, this is a passionate subject. Education is important for many. We're dealing with children. Uh, so, you know, we, we've been cordial but you know, uh, and respectful, but we just see the, the issues on two different sides. So you've put your foot down, and uh, the Work to Rule campaign has begun. Why take this step? Why was this necessary? Uh, because we weren't getting anywhere where we were at. So we were applying some pressure. Uh, we've purposely uh, curated the list uh, to be looking at key items that are services that are either beyond uh, our paid workday or services that are not funded, services that have been downloaded to us, uh, you know, applying some pressure. And, uh, you know, we agree fully. I heard your opening. Uh, QP believes in the safety and security of all of our students, and that's why we're fighting so hard for service security in our schools. Uh, you mentioned services. Are you also uh, talking about those extra duties in which your employees aren't aren't paid to do? Yeah, so uh, for instance, I'll be coming into work early today or staying late uh, across the province uh, this morning. Uh, secretaries normally would be calling and getting uh, supply coverage. They didn't do that this morning. That task was returned back to administrators in the schools. Uh, you know, work won't be performed without a work order. Um, people will be taking their lunches and breaks. Uh, some of these things, lunches and breaks, for instance, have been going un. People haven't been able to take them because we don't have enough staff in the schools to cover off for those lunches and breaks happening. 
So when you're saying you're putting pressure on the other side, uh, there's also a, a, a domino effect in which students are affected by this uh, work to rule campaign as well, right? Uh, there'll be very minimal impact on students. The majority is disruption at an administration level. Okay. Well, if a, if a supply teacher isn't found, I mean, I, I would I would assume a student is disrupted. Staffing is actually the responsibility of the principal, so the supply teacher needs to be found by the principal. Okay. So how is this move going to change negotiations? Uh, we're just applying some extra pressure. Uh, we ran a successful work to roll campaign in 2015. We were uh, did it for uh, six weeks, and we're able to negotiate a fair settlement. So it's just some extra pressure to actually highlight some of the services that we need to be doing in our schools, and we need to be funded and have the staff there to do. What are some of the other key issues? Benefits, wages also in that mix? Uh, benefits and wages are in the, that mix always. Uh, you know, we need to ensure that people are being paid fairly. Um, our key concern is service security, and you've probably seen from press releases from the minister and uh, the Trustees Association, they have brought up the issue of absenteeism. We are more than happy to talk about absenteeism, but we see absenteeism as a symptom of the problem, not the problem themselves. And, you know, we feel that key items like workload, uh, violence in, in the schools, these are all key pieces that need to be discussed because they too impact absenteeism. We're chatting with Laura Walton, President of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill this morning. Uh, you mentioned the absentee issue, so your thought is, listen, if we're not doing A, B, and C, which we're not supposed to be doing in the first place, absenteeism won't be an issue. Well, and it's a little bit more than that. We need to talk about um, workplace conditions as they lead to absenteeism. And so we wanted to have good conversations about why we felt people were, were not at work and address those, not penalize people at some lower points in their life. Uh, have both sides found some common ground? We have found common ground. And, you know, we've worked really well, but these are some key issues. Service security is a key issue for us. I understand that absenteeism is a key issue for them. We need to have respectful, you know, kind conversations to find our way through those. And we're open to reconvening at the, to the bargaining table. But to be clear, we need to see much better when we're talking about the services we provide for our students. Would you describe the negotiations as close to a deal, far apart, somewhere in the middle? I think we do really well where we can and where we have our difference of opinions, we're quite far apart. I would, I would guesstimate that a, a, a deal is not imminent then, if we're working to rule, obviously. Uh, at this point, no, I don't see a deal being imminent. <laughs> so what happens if uh, there isn't a deal to be had in the next couple of weeks or maybe even a month? Is uh, the strike the ultimate you know, last resort? Uh, that would be something that we would be considering, yes. It's not something that we want to do. Uh, but we understand that we may need to take that type of action. I think it's important, you know, the public parents, they're on our side. They see us as, you know, fighting for them and advocating for their students. We need the government to understand that, you know, it's time to make an investment in our future. How, uh, do you have a timeline on a possible escalation in job action? Are you looking at a month? Is that? Uh, not, not at this point. We're going to see how things go. Uh, today's the very first day of work to rule, so let's see how... This pans out and rolls out, and we'll go from there. And the plan is, Laura, to continue to work to rule until you either get to that strike or get to a deal? That's correct. When do you meet next with the other side? Uh, we do not have any dates set right now. They are currently in with uh, the teacher groups. All right. Are you expecting a long haul here, or are you, are, are you, you know, looking uh, well, through some rose-colored glasses? 
well, as I mentioned before, you know, we were uh, in work to rule for six weeks last time. So uh, we do understand that sometimes this is a long process. Um, but I'm also confident that, you know, the public is on our side, and that makes a difference from maybe uh, previous rounds. And so I'm hopeful that the minister will see his way through to uh, providing direction to push forward. Going into this process, or even into the school year, uh, obviously there was a lot of chatter with you know the, the Ford government making uh, budget cuts, making cuts to services. Obviously, education was on that list as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You probably you know were reading the tea leaves and anticipating this was going to happen. Yes. We anticipated that this was going to happen, and so it was very interesting to see the financial accountability report come out saying, you know, the deficit's not what they thought it was, and yet the cuts are far more drastic than what they're claiming. That is a huge concern for us, and which is why we remain at the, you know, at a position where we need to see better security for those services. Laura, really appreciate the time. Good luck uh, in uh, getting what uh, you believe the workers deserve. Thank you so much, and it's more about what the students deserve, to be frank. Well said. Laura, thanks for the time. Thank you. Laura Walton, Laura Walton, pardon me, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. So the work to rule has begun. Tens of thousands, you know, 55,000 custodians, early childhood educators, clerical workers. You know, apart from teachers, really, the, you know, those frontline individuals in your children's or grandchildren's school. They're either you know, calling in, as Laura suggested, Supply teachers, which really isn't their job, apparently. Custodians, they're keeping the schools clean. They are now working to rule. It's a 9 to 3, I guess, in terms of not going in early and not staying late. No overtime, no extra work. And I understand what both sides are saying. You know, the on, on one side... QP saying, hey, you know, we have the students' best interest in mind. On the other side, the uh, trustees associations or the school boards and the education ministry is saying, hey, you know, our, our students are being put at risk here. I wouldn't necessarily say that on day one or maybe even in, on day five. When schools aren't being cleaned for a couple of weeks, or at least as cleaned as they should be, because let's face it, they're still going to be cleaned just by someone else. The students at the end of the day will be impacted. Now, if this group goes on strike, now the impact is a little bit greater, or a lot greater. Whether or not these two sides can find some common ground, well, that remains to be seen. It'll have to come down to which side, which group makes the concessions that satisfy the other side. Obviously, at the end of the day, this is going to get settled. It's just a matter of when. Is it a couple of weeks? Is it six weeks, as Laura suggested, like the last time? Is it two or three months? And you would have to guess by that time, strike action will be taken. I think that's the last thing that we want to see, and that's the last thing that parents want to see and students want to see. And it's the students who are caught in the middle of this. I mean, they're just going to school. I think they could care less about what the union and what the education ministry wants. They just want to... You know, learn their ABCs and one, two, threes, and on you go. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Liberals releasing their election platform, the party promising that a re-elected Justin Trudeau government would impose new taxes on the wealthy, large international corporations, foreign housing speculators, and tech giants to help cover the cost of billions in new spending 
and a tax break for the middle class. Even so, this is where it really gets eye-opening. The platform released today projects another four years of deficits, $27.4 billion next year, falling to $21 billion by the fourth year of the mandate. Well, let's bring in our next guest, Geneviève Tellier, Professor of School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, and joins us now. Ms. Tellier, good morning. Good morning. So the Liberals have released their platform. Anything stick out to you? Yes. Um, when I read that yesterday, I thought it was, well, it's kind of the same platform that the provincial Liberals of Kathleen Wynne presented us uh, to, uh, last year, two years ago. So I'm very struck by the similarity of the two platforms. And it seems like uh, even though Kathleen Wynne was defeated, uh, the Liberals at the federal level think that the target is still the middle class, is still spending more, this deficit that don't, will not vanish. And they are really pushing to the left of the political spectrum than being more to the center or center-right. Strategically, is this the right move for the federal liberals? It was not at the provincial level. Now uh, the circumstances are different. I think that Kathleen Wynne lost the election because of the unpopularity of the Liberal Party. They were in power for many years and people were kind of fed up. Uh, this situation is very different at the federal level. Uh, the Liberals have been there for only four years. Uh, so there's not this sentiment of uh, them being there for too long. Um, now, um, I, I, apart from that, um, pushing to the left probably is a good strategy uh, because uh, the swing vote where they can get more voters uh, is probably to the to center, center left, and it's not to the right. Um, it's kind of polari polarized uh, the political landscape in, in Canada and also in Ontario. And uh, I think they're figuring, figuring out that there are some gains to do with such a platform. Uh, they're not only focused on the middle class with this platform, they're also looking at the younger voters as well, because this uh, re-elected liberal government is promising to increase student grants by 40%, mm -hmm. give new graduates a couple years to begin paying back their student loans. So they're looking at the, uh, the earliest uh, portion or age group of the voting demographic as well. Yes, and don't forget, that's how they won the last election. And so it was uh, that I was able to connect with the young, promising an electoral reform, promise, promising hope also. And so the population, the participation rate really increased among the youth. And so normally they don't vote that much, and that's a thing we have been discussing a lot in recent years, how to get young voters to be more engaged and participate uh, in elections. And so uh, the Liberals are still sticking to the young, uh, the, this demographic um, and yes and on top of that they are kind of saying well you see what Doug Ford has done in the province with uh, stopping the, uh, abolishing the cut of tuition fees and so uh, the federal government will step in and try to correct that and that's this kind of a funny story also if we get a bigger picture in the sense that the federal government will go in debt in higher debt because the provincial government wants to balance its budget so uh, who will pay the tab if you want, and uh, the federal government think it has the responsibility to do so. We're chatting with uh, Genevieve Tellier, Professor of School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. You mentioned Doug Ford. Uh, the Prime Minister, the Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, has evoked his name several times while campaigning in Ontario especially, and this is, and this is to no one's surprise, and he will probably continue to do so, right? 
Yes, sure. And what was a bit more surprising was uh, Andrew Shear's response, which was to mention <laughs> yeah. the name of Kathleen Wynne. That I was a bit surprised to see that. Because, you know, I think that fundamentally most Ontarians regret not having the Liberal Party in power in, uh, in Ontario. Um, uh, the ideas that the Liberal Party were proposing, they were, yes, fed up with um, the same old faces, same gang being in power, but mostly the ideas are still popular in Ontario. So attacking Kathleen Wynne, um, I'm not sure it's as efficient that attacking Doug Ford. And it, it's surprising in the liberal platform that was released yesterday, the first pages are uh, used to compare the liberal platform with the conservative platform. You don't see that normally in a platform. Normally in a platform, you just talk about your own party and you won't, don't want to give the sense that you have to reply with, to the opposition party, to, what, to, to your main ad, uh, adversary. Adversary, and so um, that seeing that, and it is really a battle. Uh, yes, they are presenting more left-wing ideas, but they are battling with the conservative. And so, one of the strategies is to have Andrew Shear and Doug Ford put in the same in the same group. And they are kind of right up to a point because the conservatives still want to balance the budget eventually. They want to do a spending review. We know that it goes here in Ontario. And so that may not be a very popular idea. And so the Liberal will, will hammer that, I think, for the next day, the next week. The other parties are going to look at this platform and say, wait, there, there's way too much spending. The Liberals think money grows on trees. Uh, this is not going to help the middle class. They're going to try and poke holes in this platform. Yes, sure, and I think they have a good argument for that. And the reply of the Liberal, I think, will say, well, you know, yes, we are still in deficit, but you know what? Compared to the other country from the G7, we are in the best position. The OECD, an international organization, is saying that it's a good thing to spend more because think of changing and we need to help the middle class. And still the ratio um, deficit to GDP is, is going to decrease even though so. We're going to have a deficit, but the economic growth will be there, and so eventually it will be less and less of a problem. So they're going to ha- they're going to use that argument. However, that argument is kind of difficult to explain in public. It's easier to say, "Well, you're running a deficit," but when you start to talk about ratio to GDP, not everybody understands really what is this concept, and so it's it makes their life a bit more complicated. So I'm not sure this will be enough to convince voters about the usefulness of of running deficits. Well, you make a great point. I'm not sure how many voters out there are diving into the liberal platform and looking at the budget items and looking at how much money is being spent. They might say, wow, you know, $27.4 billion is a big deficit. But at the end of the day, does that resonate with voters? Are they concerned about our country's deficit? I mean, as long as they're getting tax breaks and money in their pockets and services that they can rely on, are they more concerned with that? Uh, yes, that's what I think. I think Canadian as a, overall, we're kind of hypocrite in the sense that we say something, but we do the, the opposite. And so publicly, it's a good thing. It's well viewed to say, well, we have to be fiscally responsible. We have to balance our budget. We have to do that for our own household. So the government should behave the same way. But when it comes time to pay for that or to have less services, we don't feel like that. And so we push postpone, postpone this into the future. Uh, so we prefer to pay taxes later than to pay them right 
away. And we have been seeing that years and years and years over and over again. And so we were really never certain about the deficit. If we were able to balance the books, it's because the economic was going well. It was because of oil also. And so that's also another factor we should not discard. Uh, but Canada is in a good shape because we are able to sell oil to other countries. And so if we didn't have this resource, the, the situation will be completely different. And so, yes, I agree with you. Uh, we don't really, yes, publicly we say, oh, it's a big deficit. But in the end, it's really a matter of what uh, concerns us directly and what we have in our pocketbook. Genevieve, as always, appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Thank you. Genevieve Tellier, Professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yeah, talk about fighting. It was uh, Sunday nights, all right, for fighting, apparently, at Mohawk College. Four people arrested during a protest yesterday at Mohawk's Fennel campus during a speaking engagement by People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier. About 100 people turned up to protest that fundraising event. Hamilton police say that uh, four people were arrested for breaching the peace. They were taken away, later released unconditionally. No one was hurt. I guess that's the good news. But should we be surprised? Well, let's ask our next guest. Tony Chapman is speaker, moderator, TV, radio personality, joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Tony, good morning. Good morning. Uh, It seems that controversy follows Maxime Bernier around uh, wherever he goes. Uh, I guess we should not be surprised that there were violent protests at his event in Hamilton yesterday. Well, we never want to see violence, but there's no question that the only way Bernie is going to get any attention in this election is to really carve out a unique position. And that position is one that's very polarizing. Uh, In many cases, divides. There's no middle ground with it. It's sort of an all or nothing. So that is going to create controversy. And that's what he wants. I mean, every politician uh, needs attention if they even hope to uh, get you to consider voting for them. So that's his strategy. And it's... uh, so we can expect everywhere he goes, there's going to be people very for and very against uh, what the People Party stands for. Yeah, at the end of the day, bad publicity is still publicity. His name, his party is still in the headlines. Yeah, and you know, for him, it's not bad publicity. I mean, he's really got this sort of populist agenda. He's really about uh, selective immigration. He's very focused on, uh, you know, giving back to, to Canadians. They, des- they need to be front of the line. And that's a message that a lot of Canadians that are feeling uncertainty or if they're feeling that, you know, people have come in this country and taken what they deserve, plays. I mean, we saw it with Brexit in England when they, you know, they, 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 they call, the uh, big calling there where the polls are going to take, uh, take away your health care. And when you have that kind of inflammatory kind of commentary and pour kerosene on it, which he does very successfully, you're going to have some people that are saying, yeah, and this guy's speaking for me, very Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, and there's going to be a lot of people going, that's not what Canada's all about. We're about immigration and diversity and, and tolerance. So uh, he is purposely dividing, and that's what a good brand is. It knows who you are and ho- who you're not. So whether you agree with him or not, and I don't, he is doing exactly what his script says to do, make a lot of noise, have people at least listen to his point of view, and hopefully kick a couple of voters uh, loose from the other parties towards what he stands for. And that's part of his uh, uh, alternate message as well, is he's trying to get people on the periphery of some of those other parties by saying, listen, my platform or my position on certain issues is misunderstood. Come read our platform. Absolutely. And, you know, again, he hasn't got the television dollars that uh, Shearer or Trudeau has. He hasn't got that sort of single stance that the Green Party has. So he has to really 
uh, find a clever way to have people go, you know what, I, I am, I'm, I'm really worried about my job, or I'm blaming on this person, or we're not doing enough for Canadians, or, and, and so, uh, you know, or don't trust any politician. So when you get, when people are standing on shifting sand and not feeling confident who they are, if a party comes along and says, hey, come with me, you'll be standing on more firmer ground, it can work. Again, the problem that he has versus maybe a Donald Trump in the States is I'm not sure Canadians are as divided as he would need them to be to have any kind of uh, resonated on the poll. So I don't even sure he's going to keep his seat. Uh, or, or, uh, I think it's uh, uh, all he's doing is raising issues and, and, and making a name for himself. And where he goes with that afterwards is, uh, you know, is for history to, uh, to observe. Uh, I was going to ask you, you don't think he keeps his seat? I don't. I, you know, I, I, it's going to be a tough one for him, even though it's very often you know, the incumbents almost by default. I just think he's, he, he's... There's no question there's a lot of Quebecers who felt that people were just wandering in their borders. I, I've got a concern about how loose uh, Trudeau and the Liberals were with you know, uh, being a sanctuary country. That resonates, but ultimately I think the Liberals know that their vote is a better place with the Liberal Party because Quebec has benefited for, you know, since almost the beginning of Confederation with uh, having a strong Liberal Party in power and, uh, and Quebec benefiting from transfer payments and investment and such. So I think ultimately it's probably the most strategic voters in the country are, are Quebecers, and, and uh, very rarely do they wander to the NDP uh, with their vote. So I, I just, I, I question whether he's, this party's going to be in existence after this election. We've got a couple more minutes with uh, speaker, moderator, TV, radio personality, Tony Chapman here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML, Rick in for Bill. And you stole <laughs> some of the thunder of my next question as well. If they don't get an MP at all, uh, and they're probably looking at Quebec or nothing, um, yeah, how, how long do they last? Because now we're talking about, you know, funding, we're talking about supporters kind of, you know, waning off. This doesn't seem to be a long-term uh, successful program. No, I, I mean, I think it, 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 this sense of real right wing, which he represents, is it just has never really been a, a chord that's played well in the Canada. So, you know, for many years, the Conservatives and Liberals were basically sat in the middle, and one did this and one did that, but they're, they're already dividing the country, the Conservatives and Liberals. We don't need a fringe right and a fringe left anymore. So I just don't think that, that it will continue to exist. The concept of populism will certainly be part of the narrative of the far right of the Conservative Party. It has been for years. I mean, certainly look at the Dutch reformists in the area you live, and they're very vocal in their conservative values. I just think that Bernier is taking it to a, a level that it really isn't going to have a, It's not sustainable in this country. It's, it, it plays much more to you know, that patriotic America than it does to Canada, the tolerant. Tony, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tony Chapman, speaker, moderator, TV slash radio personality here, uh, joining us to talk about the People's Party of Canada leader, Maxime Bernier, had an event at uh, Mohawk College yesterday. It was uh, marred by violence. Uh, No one was hurt. That's the good thing. But four people were taken away uh, by Hamilton police. They were eventually released unconditionally, so no charges will be laid, even though they were arrested for breaching the peace. Um, Controversy just follows Bernier wherever he goes, whether it's talking about immigration levels or it's talking about free speech, which was the topic uh, yesterday at Mohawk. This is his M.O. He wants to rile up the crowd, so to speak, rile up the nation.
And uh, I, I tend to agree with Tony that, you know, this, this party's not going to be around long term. I, I think Bernier wins his seat, but that might be it. I don't see any other PPC on the election map on October 21st. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Low price fashion chain Forever 21 has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. The one-time hot destination for teen shoppers apparently fell victim to its own rapid expansion and changing consumer tastes. The privately held company based in L.A. says it will close up to 178 stores. The company once had more than 800 stores in 57 countries. 44 of those stores are in Canada, and apparently they will remain open during the liquidation process. Bruce Winder is a retail expert, speaker, consultant, professor, and entrepreneur, and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Bruce, good morning. Hey, Rick, how are you? Not too bad, yourself? Pretty good. Good. So some listeners, I would assume, are hearing the term fast fashion, and they don't quite understand what that is. Yeah, fast fashion is really sort of a category that came out, call it in the early 2000s, where um, it really targeted younger folks. And what it means is that you can get product, you can get garments that look pretty fashionable, but at a very low price because the materials are very, you know, basic material. So what it allows a young person to do is look in trend every six or eight weeks, but not uh, blow their bank account. Some uh, describe them as throwaway clothes. They're so cheaply made that you would wear them a few times and then almost be forced to throw them away. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's one of the issues that some of these uh, retailers, you know, have faced, like like sort of an H&M and Forever 21 is, you know, it's sort of disposable. I mean, you know, with so much focus these days on the environment, you know, millennials, Gen Z, you could see that this wasn't really a cool thing anymore anyways. I mean, a lot of folks now have taken up used clothing. So they're actually recycling clothing or buying clothes from used clothing stores, both for the economic benefit, but just as important, the green benefit as well. Fast fashion uh, seems to have come in and out pretty quickly. And I think to no one's surprise, because you mentioned the environmental aspect of it really wasn't conducive to lasting for any longer than it has. No, it really isn't. I mean, this is all part of the sort of, you know, call it uh, early 2000s, 90s, you know, disposable society we have where you buy something you use it you dispose of it that society is changing quickly and and you know brands that sort of live and breathe based on that premise aren't going to be around too much longer fast fashion really appeals to the younger shoppers how are they impacting the market and and can retailers keep up yeah it's been actually a big challenge i mean some would argue that fast fashion has been the demise of some of the other sort of middle chains, if you will, or the sort of tier two brand chains that we've seen go bankrupt over the last five, ten years. Um, because, you know, those places sort of had the stylish product, but it was more expensive. I mean, you kind of got a whole new price point when you looked at folks like H&M and a little higher at Forever 21. I mean, this whole category sort of, um, you know, put a big dent in some of the traditional fashion retailers from the 90s and 80s. So are are retailers adept at making these swift changes to their products, or are they almost caught behind the eight ball because they can't change that quickly? Yeah, it really depends on the company. I mean, mostly if you're a big company and you're international and you're in, you know, dozens of countries and you have revenue in the billions, it is incredibly difficult to change for at least two reasons. One, you're like a huge cruise ship, and it takes miles to stop and miles to change. In addition, consumers already perceive you a certain way in the market based on your brand DNA. 
And it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to significantly change that brand DNA once it's established. And Sears would be a great example of that. Absolutely. I mean, Sears, you know, was an awesome retailer um, for 100 years. You know, we're close to it, right? It built the middle class in North America. And then if you look at the last, you know, five years, 10 years, maybe even 15 years before it went down, people thought Sears was more of a joke. Um, you know, they used it to get good parking spots at malls. It wasn't relevant. Um, you know, and, and, and although Sears tried to do a few things in Canada to change that, um, it was absolutely unsuccessful because you can't change a brand that big that quickly, um, if at all. Our guest is Bruce Winder, retail expert, speaker, consultant, professor, and entrepreneur joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill today. Is this just another sign? Is this Chapter 11 bankruptcy by Forever 21 another sign that brick-and-mortar retailers are really behind the eight ball here? No, not really. I mean, it's, it's all case-specific. If you look at retail, retail is a fairly healthy industry right now, but it's changing like it's never changed before. You've seen the proliferation of online shopping. E-line, online shopping has grown. It's still only, call it, 5 to 7% in Canada, but it's going to continue to grow to you know, levels in the U.S. where it's more like 12 to 15%. But there are certain brick-and-mortar stores who are doing well, and there's certain ones who aren't doing well. So it's really case-specific on what you have to offer. But if you're a brick-and-mortar store and you're not, you know, you're not keeping up with the times, you're not reinventing your business model, you're not addressing what millennials and Gen Z want, depending on your customer segment, um, you're going to go the way of the dinosaur. It doesn't matter who you are. So the common denominator is that the best companies who can adapt and change have a better chance of surviving. Are other fast fashion chains like H&M, for example, which is in uh, you know Canada, that Limeridge Mall just down the street here uh, in Hamilton, are they kind of shaking in their boots with this Forever 21 news, or are they thinking, all right, now we got more of the marketplace? No, they're probably thinking we got more of the marketplace. I mean, H&M has had its struggles, too, over the last few years. They're, they're still a behemoth, right? But they've had some bumps over the last few years. But realistically, this probably gives them a bit more of the market. If you look at Forever 21, it was a little bit higher end than H&M. H&M is more like Old Navy. It's really basic. Hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see H&M pick up some share based on this. Now, it's going to be a bloodbath this fall, though because they're going to blow out all their stock at crazy prices. So H&M is probably going to have a brutal fourth quarter, but then maybe in 2020 they might pick up some share. Is there still room for fast fashion in 2020, or is it uh, going the way of the dodo bird? No, it's, it's still here, but it's going, to be, it's, it's going to change over time. I mean, these, these changes don't happen usually in like a month or a year. They take a few uh, years to happen and you know this has probably been coming for a little while it just came to the point where it's come to the point where it's in a material difference on financial results of big retailers so you're probably going to see some fast fashion for a while um, will it will it continue down the road maybe uh, will it shrink down the road probably and this couldn't have been a surprise i mean companies like Forever 21, H&M, all these other companies, I mean, they're forecasting, they're looking at trends, they're looking at, uh, you know, the bottom line, obviously. So this shouldn't have been a surprise in terms of, you know, how the the shopping appetite was changing. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, you know, there's no, if you're working internally at these companies, you've seen the writing on the wall for some time. You look at Forever 21, supposedly their sales went from $4.4 billion to, you know, $3.3 billion from 2016 to 18. So they saw the writing on the wall. They knew something was happening. See, Forever 21 is privately held out of Los Angeles, as you mentioned, right? So you don't have the same kind of visibility 
that you do every quarter to, say, someone like an H&M who's publicly traded. Interesting stuff. Bruce, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. Bruce uh, Winder, retail experts, speaker, consultant, professor, entrepreneur, talking about Forever 21 filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. I'm sure your children or grandchildren have shopped at that store. I know my daughter was there. Now looks at it and thinks, what happened? <laughs> Once so mighty and no longer. It uh, it joins a list of growing retailers seeking bankruptcy protection as they battle, well, not only their competitors in the brick-and-mortar retail landscape, but those online giants as well, like the Amazons of the world. Forever 21, founded in 1984, and uh, as you heard, wrote a wave of popularity among young customers that took off in the mid-90s because they were looking for those cheap items. Hey, I need an outfit for a party on Friday night. I don't have a lot of money. Hey, let's go to Forever 21. I can get something for 20 bucks, 25 bucks. And they'd wear it for a couple of months. And it was just, you know, at the bottom of your closet or uh, in the recycle bin, or you're giving it to, um, you know, a company that repurposes clothes. Over the last year or so, as, as you heard from Bruce, fast fashion has started to fall out of style. And and a big component of that is our eco-friendly mindset, or at least for some of us. I mean, not everyone is in that headspace. But for a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, just look at Friday's climate strike around the world. There were a lot of young people, a lot of students. Heck, students were being let out of school so they could take part in the global climate strike on Friday. So this is on their mind. So they're more interested in buying those eco-friendly products. Whether it's something that, yeah, costs a little bit more money, but it's going to last a long time. Or they'll go to the value villages of the world, say, hey, I can repurpose this. Here's a jacket that at at a store would be $80. I can get it for $30. I'll buy it. It's in style. I look good, it's a whole lot cheaper, easy on the pocketbook. That's the route I'm going to take. My daughter was in that boat as well. Hey, don't have a lot of money, but hey, let's go to Value Village, let's go to one of these types of stores. Hey, look at all the stuff we can get for this amount of money. And as long as, you know, societally they're accepted by what they wear, because we know that's how the world still works, their friends like it. Then yeah, they'll continue to go to those stores and buy those those items. Since the start of 2017, and this might be somewhat, well, not somewhat, it will be alarming for brick-and-mortar stores. More than 20 American retailers alone, including Sears, as we talked about, Toys R Us in this boat as well, have filed for bankruptcy as the onslaught of that fierce e-commerce competition from the likes of Amazon and other companies, not just Amazon, you know, a lot of other companies are in that online shopping space. They just could not keep up. Sears is a great example of being, you know, an iconic brand for so many decades, you know, open for a hundred years. They were doing something right. The Sears catalog really was, you know, e-commerce in the Stone Age, if you think about it. You got the catalog, you leaf through the catalog, you circled what you wanted. 
You put in your order and boom. You picked it up at the store. They were ahead of the game. But it it can flip on a dime, as Sears found out. They just could not keep up. I think at the end of the day with Sears, too, that brand really took a hit as a you know, a store that was not with the times, a store that you would not want to go to. Hey, let's go to the mall. We're going to go to Sears. I mean, no one said that. You may have gone into Sears if you were at a mall. Say, hey, I mean, we're here already. Let's check out what Sears got. Maybe they got something on sale. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now we'll talk about uh, impeachment. It has been uh, not only a buzzword, but a reality for U.S. President Donald Trump. Republicans split, apparently, over how President Trump should respond to impeachment proceedings. The president's allies fanned out across the country on the Sunday talk shows yesterday, uh, espousing different approaches to the rough transcript and whistleblower complaint at the heart of the proceedings. The whistleblower claiming that Trump tried to pressure the president of Ukraine to investigate the son of Democrat Joe Biden. Rudy Giuliani has been in the news for years now, but uh, as Trump's lawyer in the news for a whole different reason, trying to deflect again by insisting that the real story is a debunked conspiracy theory. Senior presidential advisor Stephen Miller saying deep state figures are to blame. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan said Biden's son improperly profited from his father's position, although there's no evidence of that. So a lot of finger pointing and deflecting going on with uh, the impeachment proceedings down in the U.S. Let's catch up to get the latest greatest on what is happening. Global's Reggie Giacchini is down there, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based in D.C. and joins us now. Reggie, good morning. Good morning, Rick. As I, as I mentioned, a lot of finger pointing yesterday on the Sunday talk shows, and that's really not surprising. That's been the 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 Trump mantra since he was elected uh, just three years ago. Yeah, I mean, this is what the president does when there is something that's uh, that's involving him or his name or his administration or his children. He gets the people closest to him that are you know living, eating, sleeping, breathing his talking points and puts them on the Sunday shows to try and spin the situation to something that uh, better suits the president and how he wants to move forward. The problem is somebody like Stephen Miller or somebody like Rudy Giuliani oftentimes are either doing a smoke and mirror situation or they're simply uh, putting the administration into further hot water by the things that they say or what they're trying to say, but it doesn't really come across what they're trying to do. Uh, Trump has tweeted, as he's known to do, that he should be able to meet with his accuser. He should meet the whistleblower. Is there any sense that that's going to happen soon? This whistleblower will likely never meet the president because the whistleblowers are kept anonymous for a reason, and it's because uh, they're trying to potentially go after or, or or report something that could be putting U.S. national security at risk. So there are laws that are put in place to protect these whistleblowers, and because of the president's insistence that this person is either treasonous or a spy or uh, you know needs to be met with, uh, there's actually somebody that's put a bounty out for this uh, whistleblower's information now, upwards of fifty thousand dollars. So there's now a federal protective detail for this whistleblower. So if they do come to Capitol Hill, it's likely going to be to testify before a House committee and will likely be behind closed doors. So how soon can we expect that to happen? 
Well, I mean, they're trying to have these negotiations with the Whistleblowers Council to try and make sure that uh, when things happen, they happen, you know, above board, uh, you know, with with protection and safety being uh, a priority and a top matter, uh, given the the threats that have been made against this person for what they have brought forward. So the conversations are ongoing. Uh, There will be a number of other hearings, though, that will likely take place before that whistleblower comes forward. How damaging could all this be to Trump's reelection campaign? Well, I mean, you know, look, the president has a base of 35 to 40 percent, and he's had that base since he was elected in. It doesn't grow. It doesn't shrink. He just has to try and hope that maybe in 2020, more people will join that 35 to 40 percent. I think that what we're seeing now is a growing number of people who were either kind of mushy middle, not really sure if they wanted to go Democrat or stay independent, who are now feeling a bit of fear uh, when it comes to what the president uh, is alleged to have done and is doing kind of publicly and on Twitter. So I think he does does risk alienating some people. There are even some Republicans now that are coming out that saying, you know, the president's uh, discussions of using the word civil war, the president using the word uh, treason are repugnant. So we're seeing parts of his own party now start to break away. Our guest is Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. Because Joe Biden is tied to this impeachment story now, are the Democrats thinking, You know, if we elect him or if he's our uh, presidential candidate, uh, this will give us maybe even more of an upper hand in 2020. Well, I mean, it's possible, but I mean, you even have to step back to look at the big picture right now. The president is really using Joe Biden as as the kind of, you know, uh, uh, political go after right now. We're still, you know, eight months away from the Democratic convention next year. Joe Biden might not even be the president's political opponent next year. And he's wasting all of his time and efforts going after somebody that who at the end of the day might not be there next summer. So, you know, that's one way to look at this right now. The second way is I think that some Democrats might actually be looking at this saying This is possibly why we didn't want Joe Biden in the first place. There is still a growing number of people who say that Joe Biden's either too old or he's been around too long or he's not kind of with today's uh, uh, societal looks at things. And and I think that you might see some Democrats say, well, you know what, if this is what we're kind of looking at next year, maybe this is what we don't want. So there could be some Democrats off to the side who are looking at this and using it as an opportunity to try and build up their own profiles to say, I have fewer issues and a little less baggage right now and the president's not targeting me, maybe I can be the person to do this. Another uh, wrinkle to this uh, whole story is that Biden's uh, camp basically is asking the major news networks to stop booking Rudy Giuliani on their shows. Um, An interesting move, to say the least. I mean, look, no, nobody's going to not book Rudy Giuliani because, A, he draws in viewers, and, B, uh, he oftentimes does or says things that potentially make it worse for uh, the administration. So, sure, they don't want Rudy Giuliani on because they continuously put this focus on a lot of these myths and debunked theories about Joe and Hunter Biden and their dealings with Ukraine and China. But at the end of the day, Rudy Giuliani oftentimes comes on and makes things worse for the administration by either saying things he shouldn't be saying or making things up on the spot and then having to retract it by getting into a fight with the host. So I think Biden's camp's a little quick to jump the gun on that to say, you know, we shouldn't be booking him anymore because at the end of the day, he does provide a lot of fuel that Democrats can then use to go after the president. You would think the Trump administration would be the ones to say, hey, Rudy, take a seat, although they're still getting the publicity, right? 
Yeah, I mean, look, he's he's been kind of pulled to the sidelines before when there were things that were involving the Russia investigation and Robert Mueller, he kind of went on, made things a little worse for a little while, so he was pulled back from the public eye and then slowly started to creep back out again as this Ukraine issue came up. Uh, but, I mean, th- th- they like him. The president seems to like him. He's not going anywhere. And, you know, he sometimes does this smoke and mirrors thing. Well, he'll say things that simply don't make sense and then they give you other things to focus on so the administration sees it as a win because he's kind of taking the heat off of Donald Trump and current issues and putting it on issues that simply just don't exist. So back to the impeachment proceedings, what's the next step in this process? What happens? Uh, well, so there have been subpoenas that have been issued uh, last week on the State Department uh, for Mike, with Mike Pompeo for some documents that were linked to the Russia issues along with Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani himself uh, expecting or has received some subpoenas as well for documents linked to his time in Ukraine. And then there's going to be uh, a number of House hearings that are going to take place, uh, likely with the Intelligence Committee, uh, the former ambassador to the Ukraine, uh, who was abruptly pulled from her position not long ago. We have a special representative to U- Ukraine who just resigned from his position, Kurt Volker, uh, a foreign service officer, a couple of people from the State Department, they're all going to come to testify before the House because they were all mentioned in that whistleblower complaint and some of them in the phone call with President Zelensky. So these people have firsthand information that will just augment what they already have from that complaint. Should we expect this um, uh, scenario to bleed into the 2020 election campaign? Oh, I absolutely think so, considering that this impeachment inquiry is likely not going to wrap up anytime before December. And then, you know, it could be December, January, February before this makes its way to the House floor and we end up going for impeachment votes. So this is likely going to make its way into the uh, into the election campaign next year. It's also going to be something the Democrats are going to carry with them. The Democratic presidential candidates are going to say, look, we're now running against a president who potentially is or is going to be uh, impeached or at least had an impeachment inquiry up against him. This is why we are the better party to choose. So regardless of what happens with impeachment, this is big fuel for the Democratic fire that they're trying to light as uh, they try to call people into their party for next year. As always, interesting times in Washington, D.C. Reggie, appreciate the time today. Cool. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington, D.C., giving us the latest, greatest on the impeachment proceedings uh, that are uh, before President Donald Trump. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.